How's that for a slice of fried gold? Oh, you think this is a fucking costume? This is a way of life. I'll be back. Just a flesh wound. I'm not gonna hurt you. I'm just gonna bash your brains. Take your sticking paws off me, you damn dirty ape. I'm sorry, Ben. Did we talk about because I can't remember the Matrix? Yeah, did we talk yeah, about we the did. Matrix? We yeah, did, did we yeah, it? earlier. Yeah. Is that the uh, one with Keanu Reeves? Yeah. Okay. I feel like this is something we'd have brought up. Did we discuss that the Wachowskis are the nieces of Lawrence Luckinbill? I don't uh, know who that who that is. He's the guy who plays Cybok in Star Trek V, Spock's brother. Oh, the one what? who's searching for God. Really? <laughs> yeah. Why well, would I don't think we no, I don't think that came up. It just feels like <laughs> something that might have come up that you were all gonna be like, you asshole. We brought that up in Matrix Reloaded. No, I mean, we do do that to you a lot because, <laughs> but it's it's usually something we brought up earlier in that same episode and you weren't listening. <laughs> yeah, that, that does happen between my old age and drinking not, and just, not paying attention. And not, that's a great, that's a great bit of Star Trek trivia, though. <laughs> yeah, I just thought that was interesting. I don't, I don't remember how I stumbled upon that. I think I was just like looking up Wachowski's trivia and just <laughs> found that. Interesting. Uh, anyway, there's that. And uh, well, hello and welcome to Cinema Shock, the podcast that explores the stories behind your favorite cult and genre films. I'm one of your hosts, Gary Horn. I'm Justin Bishop. And I'm one of your other hosts, Mr. Todd A. Davis. <laughs> wow, like we just forgot. So yeah. <laughs> I, well, I, I thought you were going to say something more. I'm sorry. <laughs> no. no. Uh, thank you. Thanks, everybody, for joining us today as we cover part six of our series titled The Wachowskis and the Cinema of Fluidity, covering the filmography of Lana and Lily Wachowski. Wow, you went way more into that introduction than I was expecting. <laughs> well, you gave me no direction. <laughs> no, thank it's you. Good job, Todd. It's two sentences. <laughs> Good job, Todd. Except except for the dramatic pause before you before you said your own name. Uh, that was very well done. That's we'll part of the we'll cinema fix it. of we'll fix it in post. As part of the cinema of fluidity, Todd is still discovering who he is. <laughs> So the critical and commercial failure of Speed Racer had left the Wachowskis in kind of a tough spot. Um, despite the huge success of The Matrix and its sequels, as well as you know the, the Wachowski-produced V for Vendetta, after Speed Racer, and as we discussed last episode, uh, didn't do great. <laughs> after that, they had a, kind of a tough time getting financing for their next project. Uh, although it is kind of hard to say whether the difficulties getting it financed were due to Speed Racer's performance or due to the project that they were trying to get made. Because the next project that they were working on was far from a commercial film, and definitely far from a, uh, a financial certainty. Uh, it would be a science fiction epic, but one with pretty deep philosophical roots, uh, more blatantly so, I think, than even the Matrix movies. It was also a hugely ambitious film, uh, it was going to be very expensive. It was a film that was being adapted from a novel whose author even felt that it was unfilmable. And it probably didn't help that the main cast of 13 actors would play a total of 62 
unique characters of various races and genders among them, which is something that would be pretty hard to explain to a studio financer. But that film, uh, through a great deal of hardship that we're going to recount during this episode, did eventually get made. And the movie we're talking about is, of course, Cloud Atlas. This is the Cloud Atlas sextet. I doubt there's more than a handful of copies in all of North America. But I know it. I know I know it. That's it. The music from my dream. There are whole movements I wrote imagining us meeting again and again in different lives, in different ages. I can't explain it. But I knew when I opened that door, a powerful deja vu ran through my bones. I heard it in a dream, as in a nightmarish cafe. And the waitresses, they all had the same face. I believe there is another world waiting for us, a better world. And I'll be waiting for you there. You know, knowing knowing what their pitch was for the matrix to will smith i am super curious <laughs> to hear the elevator pitch on cloud well, because be i mean fair. it just sounds it just sounds so bonkers like even after having watched it it's like how the hell did you pitch this <laughs> to be fair we're taking will smith at we're taking his story at face value True. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, that's true. I have a very good feeling that his that that clip that we played back in that episode about Will Smith explaining his uh, his meeting with the Wachowskis I felt like he might have embellished that just a little bit for the sake of an entertaining YouTube video. I was about to say Will Smith's a comedian at heart, so he yeah. he uh, maybe he's obviously going to tell the fun story. Based on all the interviews and stuff that we've watched, I don't know that it was that far off. <laughs> but every everyone else that's been interviewed about, like especially the Matrix specifically, about the way that they've they pitched it, were like they 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 spoke a lot about their enthusiasm, but never made it sound confusing in the way that Will Smith did. I think right. Will Smith just didn't get it. I can see Lana Wachowski <laughs> also going in depth on the philosophical underpinnings of the story, sure. and Will being like, "What man?" <laughs> Come on. <laughs> what, are you what, are you what are you talking about? <laughs> that's, a, that's a solid Will Smith, Gary. I was good. I, I started to. Here, here's what happened. I started to try to do a Will Smith. And as I got halfway through the man, I thought, is that like doing black voice or something? I don't know. <laughs> I was so I was watching the, the I didn't know that was a thing. But the wife watches this show called Neighborhood, the neighborhood. And it's got. Mm-hmm. um. Uh, Cedric the Entertainer in it is that the one? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's actually, you know, for a sitcom, it's it's funny at points. But they were like calling up somebody, and the dude, it's about a white guy and his wife moving into this black neighborhood. And mm-hmm. uh, anyway, he's about to call somebody, and he's like, "I'll call him, and I'll I'll do this." And they're like, "Oh, so you're going to do black voice now?" You know, and then that <laughs> that started a whole thing anyway i don't know if it's a thing but i know it is a thing yellow face we'll talk more about that later <laughs> we, we, we will have to i think uh are you, are before, you allowed to say that gary uh, yeah you are oh, okay all right, all right. Uh, it's, a, it's a it's a thing okay. uh before we get further into this though uh, i do want to acknowledge a source that i used for research on this because we you know when we do these shows we don't always acknowledge the sources because a lot of times it's we're pulling 
a little bit from this interview, a little bit from this YouTube video, this article here and there, Blu-ray special features, commentaries. We're usually pulling from a bunch of different places, and that's the case with this movie as well. But there was there was an article in the New Yorker, came out in 2012 as the movie was being released by Alexander Heman, uh, called Beyond the Matrix, where uh, this this writer had unprecedented access to the making of the film and to the Wachowskis and Tom Tick were in a way that they don't normally grant to to reporters. Nice. And it's, it's a very in-depth, like, 10-page article in The New Yorker. And I called quite a bit of information from that because uh, it, he was able to get a lot more information about the nuts and bolts behind getting this film made than anyone else has on pretty much any movie of theirs except for The Matrix. So Cloud Atlas uh, is based on a... 2004 novel by British writer David Mitchell. Uh, that book, Mitchell's Third, was incredibly popular among critics when it was published, and it was shortlisted for the Booker Prize, the Nebula Award for Best Novel, and the Arthur C. Clarke Award. Uh, and among its fans were German director Tom Tickwer. Uh, we haven't talked about Tickwer yet on this podcast. Uh, I don't know that we'll ever do a full series on him, uh, but he does have some films in, in his uh, filmography that would be worth discussing. Uh, but so Tickwer was born in West Germany in 1965. He was a lover of film from an early age, even getting a job at a local art house cinema as a teen so that he could see more movies, including those that he was actually too young to buy tickets for. Uh, then he later became a projectionist and a film programmer, and he quickly gained a reputation among German filmmakers as an avid film buff. Uh, one, and, of, and, one of us. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And, and these these filmmakers encouraged him. You know, he befriended some of these German filmmakers and they actually encouraged him to tell his own stories. So he soon began making his own films, first uh, short films, and then later he would start working on feature length films. Uh, his breakout movie was one called Run Lola Run, which was released in 1998, starring Franca Potenta. Uh, you might know her from uh, the the Jason Bourne movies. She's uh, his, the love interest in those first oh, couple of those. Yeah. That's probably, okay. probably her biggest role in in Hollywood. Yeah, um, no, yeah. yeah it was one of now. those movies I definitely remember working for in a video store. Like it was, I, I still remember the cover to this day. And it it's just a great being film. like a unique look. And I, yeah, and I, and I, I remember watching it uh, several times back then. Yeah. It was, it was really popular. It was part of that kind of late 90s, well, full, the, the, the full decade of the 90s, I guess, boom uh, for like independent cinema. This just happened to be one that was a foreign film. And it was very successful. And it actually became the most successful German film of 1998. And it put Tickwer on the map internationally. Uh, he followed he was that. In it. Oh, sorry. I was just going to say, for no good reason. I think he was in a relationship with Franca Potente for a long not, time. Yeah. yeah anyway, I'm sure. not important. Let's call him and ask. <laughs> <laughs> so he followed up Run Lola Run with a film called The Princess and the Warrior in 2000, and then released his first Hollywood financed film in 2002 with the Miramax produced Heaven, starring Kate Blanchett and Giovanni Ribisi. Uh, then his next film, was Perfume, The Story of a Murderer, also a really excellent film uh, starring Ben Whishaw. And then in 2009, he re released the, kind of this first big budget Hollywood film. You know, you know uh, Heaven had been produced by Miramax, but it was still independent at the time. But the this movie that he released in 2009 called The International, starred Clive Owen and Naomi Watts, was his first like big budget Hollywood movie. Nice. I remember Perfume, uh, The Story of a Murderer. That was actually, that's pretty dope. It's a really, really good it's movie. A, yeah, it's really, really good. Yeah. Oh, and it's based on a novel as well. 
I could easily see it being a horror movie, but it wasn't really played like a horror movie, but it was, no, it's got some moments here and there. Yeah. Yeah. But it's, man, it's, it's really good. I'm, I'm not doing a good job of selling it, but just (laughs) it's, it's awesome actually. So you're using a lot of adjectives. Yeah. Well, that does help. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, so that same year, 2009, uh, Tickwer announced his intent to adapt Cloud Atlas into a film and that he was working on a screenplay with the Wachowskis who had optioned the novel not long after its, uh, its publication. He also worked with Quentin Tarantino on the German stuff for uh, Inglorious Bastards, apparently like translating the screenplay oh, really? and stuff. Yeah. That's for like the Germans. So flashback to 2005. Lana and Lily Wachowski are, they're on the set of V for Vendetta shooting some second unit stuff when Lana notices that Natalie Portman is engrossed in a book called Cloud Atlas in between scenes. She just like every time she gets a break, she can't put this book down. And Portman raved about the book, which led Lana to read it. And she loved it. And she shared it with Lily. And soon they were like calling friends, insisting that they read this book. They were kind of obsessed with it. It was one of those where like, you like it, you like something so much that you want everyone else to experience it and enjoy it as much as you do. And the book is, it's complex. Uh, the book is, it, it consists of six separate storylines set from the mid 19th century through a far distant po- post-apocalyptic earth hundreds of years from now. Uh, and each story has its own unique narrator. It's a lot of it's epistolic. So like it's in the form of, you know, a letter, uh, a journal, the things that we see in the movie, the book is written that way. That's cool. Yeah. And and for the post-apocalyptic segment uh, set on, uh, what do they call it? The big Island, I believe is what they refer to it as Uh, Mitchell even created his own language, which is a sort of mutation of the English language that really kind of forces the reader to translate as they go along. I, I thought it was just like Tom Hanks and Halle Berry decided to get tired of talking. <laughs> <laughs> now, this was that was an invention of the uh, of the author. And even as he was writing the book, Mitchell thought it's a shame that this is unfilmable because uh, it was structured very interestingly. But the Wachowskis, they love this book so much that they were determined to defy the idea that this was unfilmable. They think that pretty much every story is filmable, at least in some aspect. Uh, and they were sort they were immediately kind of profoundly attracted to the idea of turning this novel into a film. I mean, this they were drawn to it, the scale of its ideas, uh, its lack of cynicism, and the dramatic possibility of the story's recurring themes of hope. Uh, a lot of themes were present in this novel that you see pop up throughout the Wachowski's filmography. So it makes sense that they were attracted to it in the way that they were. Yeah. It's, uh, you know, looking at it in its base elements. Yeah. It screams like the Wachowski's. They had also been fans of run Lola run. They saw it when it came out in 1998 and they had wanted to work with Tom Tickwer ever since. And cloud Atlas kind of seemed like the perfect project for collaboration. Just FYI, I've seen some interviews with uh, this guy and uh, very, I, I don't know if it's the German thing, but sometimes it's Tom Tickver. Tickver, yeah. Tickver. Yeah, I just, I have a hard time saying that without sound, feeling like I sound silly. Yeah, I do a German voice. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I, but no, you can imagine why these guys would connect for real because uh, big ideas like Tom Tickwer said like in German I I saw one interview with him and he and I don't remember the exact term I probably should have written it down but it was like we have it was something like that and he was like it means you have serious German voice yeah he's like we have serious or entertaining (laughs) never both and uh so and then uh so 
he likes the idea of mixing entertainment with like serious subject matter. Big ideas. Thoughts. Yeah, big yeah. ideas, exactly, which is a, a total Wachowski thing. Absolutely. Uh, the Wachowskis introduced Tickler to the book, in, and, in, and then this was like around the time they were making V for Vendetta, they introduced him to the book. And then in 2006, uh, while vacationing in the south of France, he devoured the German translated novel. Like he actually talks about like his wife getting pissed at him because he would be out on the beach reading it. And every chance he'd get, you know, while they're on vacation in like the south of France and like Cannes or somewhere like there, every time he gets a chance, he's just got his nose stuck in this book because he can't put it down. And then after finishing it, he called Lana and committed to the project right then and there. Like as soon as he finished, he's like, I'm in. I don't know. Well, whatever it takes to get this made, let's do it. Yeah, they, they describe it as like, you know, they were friends already, but from like meeting and stuff. And he, Tickworth talks about, you know, you meet a lot of different filmmakers at events and that sort of thing. But something about the Wachowskis, they like immediately connected on and they actually became friends. And, and I only stick on this just because he is obviously a big part of their stuff going forward. But or they wanted to work together since the first time they met. And then they just never knew what that could possibly be but then reading this book they all were just like oh this is like a written invitation is what this book is for us yeah. so at this point in time the wachowskis were preparing v for vendetta for release and were deep into the development of speed racer uh Tigver was simultaneously working on the international so they couldn't work together at the time they had to wait for a couple of years to begin work on cloud atlas but finally, in February of 2009, Tickwer and the Wachowskis met up in Costa Rica. They rented a house uh, to kind of buck her down and try to work on the script. At the same time, you know, they, they start working on this and they acknowledge that it might be impossible to adapt this book and also acknowledge that it might not be able, they might not be able to work together. Because uh, remember, at this point, the Wachowskis had written all of their scripts themselves. Uh, they had never collaborated with another screenwriter before. So this was going to be a first time uh, trying to work with another writer in the room and while adapting a book that no one thought was adaptable. Oof, no pressure. <laughs> yeah. Jeez. So, the first challenge in adapting the novel was the novel structure. So in the book, it's it, the, the stories are laid out in chronological order. Uh, so you start in the like 19th century. Then when you get to the, and you go progressively through time. So you go to the thirties, to the seventies, to the present day, and then into the future. But when it gets to the middle of the book, it tells the, it, you have the, the entire story of the, 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 the big island segment, the one that Tom Hanks, uh, the post-apocalyptic one. Mm. So you've got that right in the middle of the book. And then it continues the other stories in reverse order. So it's almost like I picture it like in my head is like a, like a bell curve or a nesting doll, you know, so it begins and ends with the 19th century. Cool. Am I explaining that in a way that makes sense? Yeah, yeah, no, I got it, yeah. <laughs> so it, it goes in chronological order through the far future and then starts reversing order to finish off those stories. Wow. So that's a weird way. That, like In a book, that's something that work, could work in a book, even though it's still very unique even to a novel, but there's no way that this would work in a film, and they knew that. So they started looking for connective tissues throughout the stories because you can't do a, a, a store, half of a short film, basically, cut it off, and then revisit that an hour and a half later to tell the rest of that story. Yeah, you know, like it, it's, it's a very strange, it would never work. It's bonkers to think just at the, at the scope of, I mean, I, everything that you described at the top of the show is just as you peel back layer and layer of production, it's just like, oh, my God, here's this insurmountable problem. 
<laughs> yeah, but they're working on it and they're determined. Yeah. They're trying to figure out how how can we make this work structurally? Because we can't do the way it's done in the book. We know that. So this le- leads to them breaking down the story into hundreds of scenes. Uh, they, they copy all these scenes down onto colored index cards with a different color representing each story or character, and then laid all these cards out on the floor. And then at the end of the each day, uh, as they're brainstorming, they'd pick up the cards in an order that they would hope would work for the arc of the film. And then Lana would narrate the rearranged story. And then the next day they'd do it all over again until they landed on a structure that they thought worked. And then on the last day before they left Costa Rica, they had kind of a breakthrough. They could they they had this idea that they could convey the idea of eternal recurrence, which is a theme that's central to the novel and to the film, uh, by having the same actor appear in multiple storylines. This would be uh, what T- Tom Tick would put it as: they would be playing souls, not characters. Uh, so that this this is kind of the the epiphany they had that this is the key to how we're going to break the story and make it work. So when they get back home, Lana and Lily Wachowski they they work the index cards in the order that they figured out they put they put a rubber band around take them on a plane go back to chicago and write the first draft of the screenplay which they sent to tickware and then over the next few months the trio would go back and forth on the screenplay tickware's living in germany still at this point by the way so they're kind of going back and forth mm. and then by august of that year they had a draft that they were ready to send to mitchell because re- remember the wachowskis had just completed a project that was hated by its author with V for Vendetta. They didn't want another Alan Moore situation like they had had on that film. So they decided that, you know, if Mitchell did not like how they were adapting his story, then they were going to scrap the project entirely. They didn't want to do it without his approval. So they met Mitchell. Uh, They they flew over to uh, Ireland, actually. He was living in Southern Ireland at the time. Uh, They met him there at a pub and, you know, they kind of made the pitch to him. They explained this complex adaptation process and the idea of having the same actor in multiple roles and by the end of the pitch Mitchell said that this might actually be a case where the movie was better than the book uh, that that was his response to their pitch like I would say you know that's he they definitely had his blessing at this point they were ready to move on with the project especially after dealing with the impossible to deal with Alan Moore <laughs> oh god yeah yeah having having the author on your side definitely greases the wheels i got to think well if you, you see david mitchell in interviews even after this movie was released and everything um he's this movie's biggest fan you know he he is incredibly happy with the way that the adaptation process worked out on this nice. we talk about how they didn't want to make it like alan moore that situation i'm just kidding i'm just kidding that's a <laughs> that's a callback <laughs> it's easier to do a callback when you do remember what uh, we talked about before <laughs> so before we get any further into the making of cloud atlas uh, we do i think need to address some of the personal stuff going on in the wachowski's lives at this point because i think it is a, a vital part of their story both as people and as filmmakers Uh, As we've alluded to in past episodes on this series, uh, during the production of the Matrix sequels in Australia, Lana, who was still identifying as Larry Wachowski, was suffering from uh, severe depression uh, due to a recent separation from her her wife, uh, which I think Gary went into a little detail on that on one of the Matrix sequels, I think, uh, and from her struggles with her gender identity. Uh, She even confessed to Lily... uh, that the reason that she went swimming in the bay every morning, this is in Australia, uh, instead of in their pool was in the half hope that she'd be hit by a boat or eaten by a shark. For years, she was unable to even consider the terms transsexual or transgender, even though she knew something wasn't 
right with with the way she was presenting herself. Uh, but once she admitted the truth to herself, she kind of knew that she'd have to tell her parents and her sister, and that this is an idea that created extreme anxiety, as you can imagine. Mm. Yeah, like an exact quote from her. I think I saw what you're probably pulling from there, but said uh, she said, for years, I couldn't even say the words transgendered or transsexual. When I began to admit it to myself, I knew I would eventually have to tell my parents and my brother and my sisters this fact would eject so much terror into me that I would not sleep for days. So she starts talking to her therapist and trying to figure out a plan on how to do this. And this was supposed to be kind of a slow process. Like a, it was a coming out plan that they'd come out with. Like, this is, we're going to do this slowly a little bit at a time. Uh, it was supposed to take like three to five years uh, before she was completely out in the open as, as Lana. But then a couple of weeks into this plan, her mother, Lynn, called from Chicago uh, and she sensed that something was wrong. Her mother did. So she flew out to Australia the next day after speaking to Lana. Uh, the morning after her arrival, Lana told her that she was transgender, that she was a woman, and, and her mother didn't really understand at first, mm. but quickly offered her unconditional support, saying that uh, she said she flew to Australia worried about losing her son, but then she said, this is a quote, instead, I've just found out there's more of you. And then Lana's father, Ron, flew out as well from Chicago to Australia, offered his own unconditional support, as did Lana's sisters, because uh, the the Lana and Lily have two other sisters, Julie and Laura. Uh, they offered their support. Of course, Lily, who was still identifying as Andy at this time, did as well. Uh, so this meant a lot. Uh, this was something that was obviously like, you know, in that quote that Gary read, like this is causing her to not, she can't sleep. Like she doesn't, she's, she's worried about how her family is going to take this. And they just like immediately accepted her which wow. is unfortunately not the way these stories always go, but it's, it's nice yeah. to hear it when it does, yeah. when it does go that way. Kind of sweet. And, and a couple of days later, they're still in Australia, the Wachowski family, all, they all go out to dinner in Sydney. Uh, Larry is now identifying as Lana dressed in women's clothing. And the way the waiter, they said at the, uh, at the dinner, like referred to Lynn and Lana as la ladies, like immediately didn't question it. And that was it. The next day she shows up to work as Lana in her new identity, as if nothing had happened. And, and that's, that's kind of her story. Like it's, it's sort of incredible. Uh, here's actually the, the article I mentioned earlier in the New Yorker. Uh, here's a quote from Lana from that profile. She said, I chose to change my exteriority to bring it closer into alignment with my interiority. My biggest fears were all about losing my family. Once they accepted me, everything else has been a piece of cake. And I bring this all up for a couple of reasons. I mean, this is not, we're not a tabloid podcast like we talk about the making of the movies but i think one it would be kind of weird to just ignore it especially given the thematic discussions that we've already had regarding identity in the wachowski films before now uh, but also cloud atlas would end up being the first film in which lana wachowski is credited under that name hmm. uh, and also i think thematically the concept of gender and identity fluidity is more integral to this film than any other film in the wachowski's career uh, so i think it is a, it, it would be very strange if we just <laughs> didn't didn't mention it at all yeah i mean you know knowing how much uh the backgrounds of some of the folks that we've talked about you know prior to this series how much that background or raising or education influenced their filmography i mean i think um, that in, in, that's the case in any art i think that the artists yeah. a, a good artist is always pulling from personal experiences even if they're not making something autobiographical i mean we talked about that during paul verhoeven his I was youth thinking. growing up you know <laughs> yeah. in war-torn uh, amsterdam and it's 
that that's even though yeah i mean he did make war movies but that stuff comes up in robocop mm-hmm. starship troopers which is a war movie you know not a traditional one but you know that his his experience has informed his art and oh, yeah, i think absolutely. most most of the the best artists i think are pulling from some sort of personal experience uh, sure. even if it's just an internal thing mm-hmm. yeah absolutely yeah, and I think, um, I mean, during this time, this was a thing that was being talked about a lot uh, with the Wachowskis because uh, Lana was the first, I mean, mainstream director or somebody, you know, like this was not as known as it even is now. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, and she had given it a speech at uh, the Human right ca- Rights Campaign, I think, and that was a big deal. Like, it was a really cool speech. If you haven't heard it, you can, like, look it up online. It's, it's really easy good. to find. Yeah. So it's going to inform a lot of what they're talking about. Just that this who, well, the the whole point of this series, I and mean, we call it the cinema fluidity or whatever. It's it's. I mean, a lot of their movies are about identity and who you are and that sort of thing, and, and allowing uh, yourself to change if if that's what needs to be done. Yeah, uh, exactly. And, and she quotes uh, in a few interviews I saw this uh, uh, philosopher George Berkeley who has a quote that says, uh, "To be is to be perceived," and so. She talks about how important it is to get your who you are out there, because otherwise, if you're living this private and public life separately, then you're really not feeling seen at all. Like you're not a person. You're not a real person if, right. you know, no one uh, recognizes who you are. So anyway, just uh, it's, it's a big part of it. So, yeah, why, why ignore it? Yeah. yeah. So at this point, though, in, in the process, uh, let's, we're in 2009. Uh, the Wachowskis are struggling to find financing for Cloud Atlas. Uh, Warner Brothers, who we've discussed on every episode of this podcast, I think so far, uh, they still had a relationship with the Wachowskis. Uh, they had a first look option with the filmmakers, but Warner Brothers passed on the project, as did every other major studio. Cloud Atlas was just considered too challenging, too complex. Now, the Wachowskis, of course, reminded Warner Brothers that The Matrix had also been seen as too challenging and too complex. Took several years for any studio to green light that, and when they did, they made that studio, Warner Brothers, a great deal of money. It's a good uh, argument. It's <laughs> a really good argument. <laughs> but the studio insisted that, they're like, we can't do it this time. The best that we could do is we'll keep open the possibility of purchasing the North American distribution rights, uh, the, pay- the payment of which would cover a portion of the film's budget, but there was no way they were going to finance the whole thing you got to think they were looking yeah you're absolutely right however your last two yeah well <laughs> yeah much. i mean yeah but the, the matrix that has, two and that three has to be still, the, the thought process of whatever sure, executive but, they sat in front of well i mean the matrix two and three made still made a lot of money uh yeah, but speed yeah. speed racer on the other hand yeah uh would definitely be uh a weapon <laughs> that the warner brothers could probably use as like a nah let's yeah. let's maybe not do something <laughs> this ambitious right now right so ever since that brainstorming session that writing session back in costa rica the wachowskis and tom tickler had seen the script's dramatic trajectory as the evolution from the sinister Dr. Goose, that's the character that Tom Hanks plays that's like poisoning his friend mm. in the, that uh, 19th century story, uh, to the decency of Zachary, with both characters embodying what they call the, the kind of quintessential everyman. Mm. So who better to cast as the quintessential everyman than the ultimate everyman, Mr. Tom Hanks? That was their that was their thought. So they they are like, who who the hell else can we get to do this? Nobody yeah. like he's America's dad. Let's get let's yeah. get Tom Hanks. <laughs> so they send Tom Hanks the script. Uh, he agrees to meet with them, and Hanks loved the script, but he could also see 
immediately that this was a risk from a business aspect mm. uh, that put it he's like this is brilliant but it puts huge challenges on the audience and we're talking about americans here too but tom hanks was a uh, tickver was a huge fan uh said a, a lot of germans are huge fans of tom hanks uh i had a quote from him when he says uh, you can imagine how hugely debated Saving Private Ryan was in Germany. Oh, yeah, <laughs> he's like, and I think the only reason people were able to get into it was because Tom Hanks. Yeah. In Europe, people have even forgotten God. that Forrest Gump was an American. <laughs> wow. Yeah. Gosh, I didn't even think about that. That's crazy. So when the filmmakers met with Hanks, uh, he was in the middle of reading Moby Dick, uh, which became kind of a point of conversation. You know, while they're talking with him, and during the course of course of their meeting, they're at. Tom Hanks's office in you know Santa Monica or wherever it is. So during the this conversation, they're talking about Moby Dick, and then Lana points out a poster that's hanging on Hanks's wall, and it was 2001: A Space Odyssey, which was the film that had inspired Lana to become a filmmaker since that first viewing as a kid. Uh, I think Gary mentioned this in a previous episode about that first like mind blowing experience, not really understanding 2001, but wanting to see it over and over and figure out like. How did this, how did this get made? How I didn't know movies could be an experience like this. That's the movie that made her want to be a filmmaker. So it seems kind of serendipitous. You know, she's reading, he's reading Moby Dick, uh, which was a big inspiration for the 19th century section of the Cloud Atlas novel. And he's got a 2001 Space Odyssey poster. So she she says to Hank, she's like Moby Dick and this pointing at the poster. This is what we want to do. And that was it for Tom Hanks. Like, that's all it took. He was in. He knew he could see where they were coming from and what they were trying to do. And, and looking back on the meeting in that 2012 profile uh, from The New Yorker, he, he said that Tom Hanks said that he was especially impressed with the Wachowskis being unashamed to say we make art. Uh, this goes back to kind of a conversation we were having, I think, on the Speed Racer episode that Gary brought up, you know, that they are unabashed, that they are artists first and foremost. And Tom Hanks was like, you know, for a guy that works in Hollywood as much as he does, it's got to be kind of refreshing. Yeah. I mean, you know, dealing with a lot of uh, people puffed up egos and stuff like that and thinking that their, that their shit doesn't stink. <laughs> yeah. Someone just, Hey, look, we do this. We make art. It's sometimes weird. Not everybody gets it, but this is what we do. And we've had some success and yeah, this is, this is it. And I, and to be honest, like, that's a great pitch of like, we start with Moby Dick. We end at 2001 A Space Odyssey. Like It that's really a is. Fantastic yeah. pitch. It Absolutely. really is. Yeah. And, it, and it's got to be a, it's an interesting concept for Tom Hanks because like we keep saying, he's the, he doesn't need a bio here. He's one of the most famous actors ever. He's the modern day Jimmy Stewart, uh, but <laughs> multiple times over best actor in all kinds of publications. And uh, he's really, like we said, known for playing like mild mannered normal guys usually likable and you know just thrown into unique situations but but here here he gets to viciously murder people and say the n-word which i've heard is really what sold him and, <laughs> <laughs> let's, let, let us not sully the name of thomas Hanks. <laughs> no uh i, I did I've see heard, an interview with him where the they were rumor like, starts here gentlemen <laughs> i've heard that about tom Hanks. <laughs> I saw this interview with him where he said uh, he read it. He was like, I read it. And I, I, I didn't have any questions. I just didn't have any questions. I read it and, and that was it. And, there were, and the interviewer was like, so you understood it? And he's like, no. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> 
Uh, so just before this meeting, like literally while they're in the car on the way to Tom Hanks's office, uh, the Wachowskis receive a phone call from their agent telling them that Warner Brothers had decided we're going to hold off on that distribution deal that we were considering. Uh, they'd run some projections, which are never, uh, you know, a filmmaker's best friend. Uh, and the numbers had just come back too low. And the template that had been used for these projections, according to the Wachowskis, had been The Fountain, Darren Aronofsky's 2006 film that also had multiple storylines set in multiple eras using the same actors. So they see all these things as like, this is kind of like Cloud Atlas. And The Fountain, of course, had re received a mixed response from critics and had lost $20 million for the studio. So it yeah. uh, wasn't, wasn't faring well for the Wachowskis uh, project at this point. But once Tom Hanks was on board, so they find this out on the way to the meeting. They get the meeting, they get Tom Hanks on. Tom Hanks is in. That's a big deal. The, anytime you can get an actor, especially of Tom Hanks's caliber, on board, it's always a kind of a sign of good faith for the studio. Oh, yeah. So they use that as a motivator to try to get Warner Brothers back on board. And they insisted that like a film as complex as Cloud Atlas had no precedent. Uh, therefore, no template would fit it. Like you can try to compare it to The Fountain all you want, but this is a different film and a different story. And they presented the story to Warner Brothers as, this is a, a quote from them, a tale of redemption of the continuity of essential human goodness, where individual acts of kindness have unseen repercussions. They pared down this pitch to one simple idea. Here's your, here's your elevator pitch, Todd. This is what they're, right. how, what, how they're selling this to Warner Brothers. They say Tom Hanks starts off as a bad person, and over the centuries, evolves into a good person. Nice. And that's it. Simple as that. <laughs> yeah. And that was enough. They got Warner Brothers to sign on. They were down to distribute the film, although with a much lower offer than the filmmakers were hoping. In the end, Warner Brothers contributed about $20 million to the planned uh, $120 million budget. Oh, they did. I mean, they... Yeah. The, the Wachowskis credit Tom Hanks a lot in this, though. Yeah, for sure. Like that, that even with the actors, the other actors and like signing people up that Tom Hanks was the first to fly over to Berlin. Yeah. And then you could say like, no, he's over there. He's ready to shoot. He's, he's ready to go. It. So at this point in the film's development, the only other guaranteed money that the Wachowskis were getting would be from the German Federal Film Fund, much like Speed Racer. Uh, they had planned on taking advantage of this by filming a, a big portion of Cloud Atlas in Germany. Remember, they started working in Germany originally on V for Vendetta uh, and, and in Babelsberg, which is where they filmed a, a good bit of Cloud Atlas as well. And eventually they started selling equity in the project to a variety of international investors, including foreign Asia, totaling about $35 million. And, and this is, you know, for a movie like this, this is kind of a dangerous situation. Because what happens is investors would sign on, drop out. Some investors would see that another investor had dropped out. They, they saw that as a bad sign that they would drop out. They're treating it like the stock market, yeah. basically, uh, is what they're doing. And this is an endless cycle that was frustrating to the filmmakers who several times actually had to decide if the project was worth continuing at all. Uh, and it eventually led to the budget being pared down to closer to about $100 million dollars. But even at that price, it still made Cloud Atlas one of the most expensive independently financed movies of all time. Wow. And as they're trying to decide if, how they're, if they're going to do this, they said they kept going back to the script and they would reread the script and they would just get fired up again. Like, we've got to make this movie. And the Wachowskis even deferred their own directing fees and invested some of their own personal money into the project. Like, this is a passion project for them. And they're determined to see it through to the end. Yeah, like that. you, you got to 
if you don't believe in yourself, nobody's going to. No. <laughs> I mean, it's it's kind of nice that they were able to use their own work, their own adapted work, but like their own work to to keep them motivated. And, yeah, you know, I mean, the Wachowskis that, were That's a lot of, boy, that's a pain in the ass to yeah. hear like I mean, everybody dropping out. It is, yeah. And I mean, the Wachowskis were doing very well. Yeah. <laughs> financially uh, yeah. at this point because they're making royalties off the matrix and the video games and all the other stuff that says the matrix on it like anything that says the matrix they're making money off of so they're mm. they're they're doing very well and they've got the money to invest but that's still a huge personal investment so at various stages during the film's development actors such as natalie portman james mcavoy and ian mckellen had been asked to join the cast but none of them ended up signing for one reason or another scheduling etc all the millions of reasons that actors don't sign on to any given project Mm -hmm. uh, but one of the other actors who was on Tickver's list, his wish list for, for someone to be in the film was Holly Berry. Uh, she became the next actor to join following Tom Hanks. And she soon says, the cast, by the way, that she was only a uh, petition with uh, two roles. But yeah, anyway, <laughs> that's ha I think that happened a few times. <laughs> and then they're like, <laughs> now you're also going to play this one and this one. Hey, do you want to play like an Indian man? Yeah, let's go for it. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure this helped it a lot too, though, because Holly Berry is another one of those actors that you don't need a bio on uh, right. to, everybody knows who Halle Berry is. Yeah. And then the, the cast started being rounded out after Holly Berry joined the, the you've got, you know, Wachowski regular Hugo weaving. We've got Susan Sarandon, who of course had been in speed racer, Ben Wishaw, who had not worked with Wachowskis yet, but had been in perfume story of a murderer for Tickver, uh, Jim Sturgis, Keith David, James Darcy, Jim Broadbent, Korean star Duna Bay, uh, who is, my favorite part of this movie and of their follow-up since eight. I think she's a badass. Oh, yeah. uh, I would, she's incredible. Uh, and then Hugh Grant uh, ended up in joining like a few days before shooting began uh, <laughs> onto wow. this, which is, which is crazy <laughs> for such an ambitious project where he signs on for five roles and then they end up uh, giving him a sixth role. The, um, the old man, the, uh, I can't remember his name, but it's Jim Broadbent's brother who puts him in the home right, that was right, like the yeah, one that they, yeah. they tacked on at the end for him and he like <laughs> hugh grant's like yeah of course like you want me to just play villains in every one of these this sounds great hugh grant doesn't get to play villains very often right the only right. other villain role in fact i can think of hugh grant in is in paddington too <laughs> <laughs> he said um part of him getting the movie was it was really just a matter of like his agent is going through stuff and like he's on the phone with his agent and his agent's just like reading like, and you got this offer and this offer and this, Ooh, here's a weird one. And reads it to him, he's like, Oh, that one. <laughs> oh yeah. He's like, Oh wait, you guys want me to play the chief of a cannibal tribe where I get to like slit throats and cut scalps. He's like, there wasn't a whole lot of that in sense and sensibility. So let's, uh, let's roll with that. <laughs> But the cat, the cast is incredible, and definitely one of the first things that I think stands out about this movie, even if you haven't seen it, because I hadn't. But I know that it's one of those movies I had not seen. But I know like Halle Berry and Tom Hanks, and there's all these other faces I recognize, and I'm like, why did I never see that? Why did I never hear more about that? Because yeah. um, you got guys like Broadbent, who's one of those guys you've known, you've seen, you know, you've seen him in like a hundred different places. Oh yeah, like, yeah. He's Moulin wonderful. Rouge, Gangs of New York, Harry Potter. Mm -hmm. He's mm -hmm. uh, I think at this time he'd won an Oscar already for playing John Bailey and Iris. Uh, he's, uh, he's just all over the place. So you recognize him immediately. Hugo weaving was yeah. on fire during this period. Uh, yeah. A fire that he, the, the Wachowskis helped start. So he yeah. uh, went back to them to help put it out. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> 
<laughs> he'd obviously done the matrix and v he did and fine he did red skull after this so his career no was red skull is before this right oh like, is it yeah what I year was red that skull was right before this before like, it's pretty close they, they were probably filmed around the same time or back to back i would guess yeah when's captain america the first avenger <laughs> i love the the um 2011 is when it came out oh so so it was after this no, this was, was this not 2012? Oh, this was 2012. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. Right. So, so, yeah. So, yeah. So, I mean, and he done, I mean, between after V, he went on to do like Elrond and Lord of the Rings, right? Like he, well, Lord voiced, of the Rings was in 2001. Oh, yeah. So he'd been voicing Megatron, yeah. I guess. And then, uh, what Megatron's on Lord of the Rings? What do you, oh, no, no, I'm sorry. I did, <laughs> and then he voiced Megatron. That's, what I was That's say. the movie. That's the movie I want to see. <laughs> Megatron would have <laughs> fucked up the Shire. Don't Transformers in Middle Earth. If, if, Can we have our money now? If Sauron had access to Megatron, there would have been no issues. <laughs> uh, but yeah, and also the Red Skull, like you mentioned. Uh, you mentioned Bay Donna and uh, or by Donna. Uh, I mean, the only thing I would have known her from is like the host. I remember she's in the yes, host and yeah. And that's Great a movie. Korean monster movie. Yeah, awesome movie. Uh, she's also in like yeah, that's, that's Bong Joon Ho who did who won the Oscar last year for Parasite. That's yeah. one of his earlier movies. Yeah, she's also in Sympathy for Mr. Vengeance. I saw. Yes, yeah, she that's is. It. Yeah, which is another awesome movie. Incredible movie. Uh, uh, yeah, I like. I know I like her a lot. I would like to see her with more big Hollywood roles. Honestly, she's 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 my jam, and so is Keith David, who's got that yeah. deep uh, Orson Welles voice. He's just a badass. Yeah. Another one of those guys you've seen in a million different things. And they uh, live, of course. Yeah. He plays a million different roles in this. He gets to do from like Shaft to like uh, a slave to, yeah. you know, like whatever to some weird Star Trek villain or something. Or <laughs> right. and, uh, the prescient, <laughs> I think is what they're called. The prescience. Yeah. yeah. And that Jim Sturgis, uh, well, I guess Ben Wishaw's in there too. He did a, uh, he was in Paddington himself. Yeah, Paddington. We we mentioned that off air, and but he was in before this, like across the universe. Yeah, uh, that was the no, that's Jim Sturgis, not Ben Wishaw. Oh, that's Jim Sturgis. Yeah, yeah, sorry. Jim Sturgis is in across the universe. Uh, ben Wishaw's in Perfume. Yeah, yeah, you mentioned yeah. that and Layer Cake. I remember Layer Cake, which was uh, but Perfume. Yeah, the Tom Tickfer, but I, I think he beat out like Orlando Bloom and Leo for that role with him. Oh wow. And uh, so he was, you know, he was working on his career, but Jim Sturgis, yeah, uh, across the universe, he was Jude. He was having a bit of a moment, but uh, don't tell me they didn't want Keanu. Uh, <laughs> or, or at least was, weirdly, he looked like Keanu. Yeah, what was Matrix. Keanu doing at this time? Man? <laughs> 2012. Mm. 2012. What was Keanu doing in 2012? I'm looking it up. I'm I curious. saw pictures of him at the premiere, so he was around. He, he wasn't dead, yeah. He was <laughs> he might have been busy. <laughs> 2012, Keanu was doing um Man of Tai Chi. So he was working on his own direct that came in 2013. Uh, that's so dope, I bet I bet he movie. was like, yeah, I bet he was working on pre-production on that. So that would be my guess. He was yeah. at the premiere, so I can't help but think when that futuristic thing came up, he was like, Whoa. <laughs> like he, he saw <laughs> Jim Sturgis. So, hey, since we're talking about uh, the cast, I thought it'd be a good time to talk about who has appeared in Star Trek. Oh, tell and us, the, Todd. Yeah. So uh, <laughs> this week's Who Am I Trekking With? The answer is nobody. <laughs> oh, all right. Well, that was anticlimactic. Thank you. Yeah, sorry. 
<laughs> just wanted to mention it before we got hey nobody's in star trek <laughs> nobody's in star which, trek all right which is surprising like a, you know with a cast this size like yeah. that's like because because so many people in this are so diverse like mm-hmm. you would think that i don't know that jim broadbent or or somebody would have popped yeah. up and my money my money was on keith david i was yeah. like with that with that voice like he's definitely There's... either been like an admiral or some sort of alien race or something you know star Trek. there's still time other... yeah, yeah there's still time <laughs> uh, star trek's known for their you know very wide uh range of uh character actors but here once again nobody yeah. What the hell is going on here? I was no, like, Wachowski, I was no, googling as you're Star talking. Trek. I'm like, Keith David has been on Star Trek. He 100 percent has, <laughs> and you can find a picture of him in a captain's chair, but it is fan art. Somebody yep. has, That's it. somebody else wants him to be in Star Trek. <laughs> I know because it just looks like he would have been he would have been a captain of a starship. Yeah. Like, yeah, David. like I said, yeah, either like a, a you know an admiral of somebody or you know that yeah. What I, the I, hell? I, yeah. I, I, I was like, okay, I know most of these folks probably haven't, but like I said, my money was on Keith David. You lost that bet. I lost it. Yeah, sorry. <laughs> so the Wachowskis and Tickmar had planned a pretty unique partnership in directing the film. Uh, Lana and Lily would direct the 19th century story and then the two stories that are set in the future. While Tickmer took on the story set in the 30s, the 70s, and in the present. Uh, the plan was that they would work with two completely separate crews, filming often at the same time, uh, but collaborate closely. This has got to be one of the only movies like this, right? Where I there's can't, like three directors that Yeah, it's something you credit. see more of like a TV show, but like... Yeah. Yeah, three directors on a, three directors of, on a movie that's not an anthology of some sort. Of, right, of, this, right. of this scale. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, definitely. Yeah. So in addition to filming in Germany, other shooting locations for Cloud Atlas included Edinburgh and Glasgow, Scotland, Uh, Six weeks in Mallorca, Spain, where much of the Big Island and Pacific Island sequences were filmed. Uh, And the filming, much like the development, was often very difficult. Uh, A mere two days before filming was to begin, Holly Berry broke her foot, uh, which is bad for a character who has to run a lot in at least two of the sequences. (laughs) So the original plan was to shoot the film in chronological order, uh, like by era that it's set in. Mm. But Barry's injury caused the entire filming schedule to have to be rethought. The only other option was to replace Barry at the last minute, which neither the Wachowskis nor Tickmer wanted to do. If anybody's wondering, the uh, reason she broke her foot was from kicking Tom Hanks in the dick because he didn't do any peeing scenes in this movie, which he's (laughs) famous for. Um, (laughs) No, I actually looked it up and it was because uh, she was on an off day of shooting, she was chasing her daughter around and tripped on a rock and yeah, broke her foot. That's a bummer. As <laughs> as oft wants to happen. As oft wants to happen. Well, you can you say know, that when, again. Yep, <laughs> you could try. <laughs> I, today, today's fumbling has been brought to you by KBS, <laughs> the highly acclaimed flavored stout. <laughs> Messing up podcasters since uh, I started drinking. <laughs> So according to Barry, this new schedule involved, this is a quote from her. She says it involved traveling back and forth to Mallorca and then to Germany. And then we had to go back to Mallorca when my foot got a little better. And then we were able to shoot some of that stuff on the mountainside when I could climb a little bit better. It was all over the place. So that there, think of this. Think of how difficult and challenging this must be. You're shooting with two entirely different crews 
across four different countries, but you're not shooting totally separate projects because you've got the same actors appearing in all of them. Mm-hmm. Uh, and because they're no longer shooting it chronologically, they couldn't just finish up the stuff, the 19th century stuff, and then go on. They had to like one day, Jim Sturgis might be on this like you know merchant ship. And the next day he's being, he's in the future being made up to look Asian, which we'll, we'll get into, <laughs> but, uh, but going back and forth, you know, the logistical juggling involved in the schedule is kind of mind boggling. Like I do not envy whoever the production manager was on this, who had to like figure all this out. No. Well, you got like tight production times, uh, switching the actress between the units, prosthetics, you got to do all of that stuff. Like Halle Berry in one interview described the experience talking about she was like in one week she was a jewish woman in the 30s under the direction of tom tikfer and uh then switched to an old tribal woman under the helm of lily wachowski and then lana wachowski and then again as an environmentalist in the 70s it's all all in the span of a week yeah. she was having to like switch back and forth between these things and uh it's got to be challenging but it's also probably somewhat kind of fun for the actor to be able yeah to- maybe i mean uh by donna's said she was in a weird emotional state like during it because especially when she got to germany and she didn't like know anybody except the cast and crew so like some of her performance was kind of attributed to that like kind of in this state she was in um but yeah all in all you had like 19 different countries repped in this movie and just with all of these people tom um, hanks described it as doing like a theater camp but all at once (laughs) Like all within a, a various, like we're just getting to play all these different roles. Tom Hanks sounds like he had a blast on this when he, he talks about it in interviews. Yeah, I, w- I was listening to this thing with uh, Tom uh, Tickver, and he's talking about like how, you know, like the actors that had to play like multiple characters, they seemed to enjoy it or they were trying to get like what their motivation was. And he would, you know, you mentioned the soul earlier. It's interesting because he said that when he described it to them, which is a whole other philosophical discussion, because some people say this is like the perfect atheist movie and some people like use it to justify whatever else and yada, yada, yada. But he says he tried to tell them like, uh, imagine you're this, like it's a genetic strain passing from person to person. You say it was some of the actors would fire back like Hanks or something. It's like, no, it's the soul. It's the soul moving uh, from place to place. And, um, but, but either way it informs like how you're trying to approach this role, like each different part that you're playing. So I can imagine it's, it's, it's interesting for sure. Yeah. Yeah, It's gotta be from their, from their point of view. So the, the behind the scenes crew on the film was almost entirely different than any other Wachowski film. And I'm not exactly sure why that was. It may have just been a byproduct of the unique direction of the film, because there are several of uh, Tom Tickver's past collaborators working on this. Uh, but either way, very few of the Wachowski collaborators who whose names we've heard pop up over and over again in the series are present here. Uh, there's no Bill Pope behind the camera. There's no Owen Patterson designing sets, no Don Davis composing music. The film, probably by necessity, since it was shooting in multiple places simultaneously, had two directors of photography. You had Frank Greeby and John Toll. Uh, Greeby was a regular contributor with, uh, with to type verse films having worked on pretty much everything the director had done prior to this film. So they were, they were longtime uh, collaborators. John Toll, on the other hand, had never worked with either the Wachowskis or Tickver prior to this movie, but was already a very well-respected cinematographer, having worked on films like Legends of the Fall, uh, Braveheart, both of which earned him Oscars back-to-back, by the way. Nice. <laughs> uh, almost famous, The Thin Red Line, like he's uh, kind of a legend. And he would later work with the Wachowskis 
as the cinematographer on Sense8 and also on the upcoming uh, fourth Matrix film. Getting ahead of ourselves. That's one thing I will say about uh, Sense8 is beautifully shot. It is a really, really good looking. Yeah, yeah, it yeah. really is. Uh, the music in the film was actually composed by Tom Tickver and his musical collaborators, Johnny Clemick and Reinhold Heil, who he'd been working on with this on all of his films since Run, Lola, Run. Uh, so, yeah, and they actually composed the score prior to filming, which is really unusual. But that I think the score in this is very important to the overall feel of it because it keeps this like very quick momentum going, especially in the latter half of the film where the movie is just every story is no matter where you are in the story is just moving on towards its inevitable conclusion. Uh, but it makes it feel like a thriller, even mm. in the segments like the Jim Broadbent, like a, the, the kind of funny escape from the old folks home. Uh, yeah. It kind of makes it gives it a little bit more of like a urgency almost. I, I really like the score to this and that knowing that Tickver did this, I, which I didn't know when I was watching it until afterwards. Uh, it makes sense because he used the score in Run, Lola, Run in very much the same way. And if you've seen that movie, you know that it is literally a race against time for the entire 90 minutes of that film. Mm. So it's, it's a very similar concept here. Uh, another significant collaborator on this project was production designer Hugh Beta. Uh, he was the man responsible, of course, for creating the look of six different time periods, two of which were completely imagined, you know, the one set in the future. So Beta was an Australian. He, uh, as are a lot of the collaborators on the Wachowskis film since The Matrix, where they worked in Australia and, of course, met a lot of great uh, great film crew there, but uh, Beta in his career in the film industry back in 1981, he was like a production runner or carpenter or something like very, very, very low on the totem pole. Uh, but he worked his way up and began art directing films by 1989. Uh, and one of the films that he was the art director on was The Matrix. Uh, and he then stepped up to supervising art director for The Matrix sequels. Uh, but a Cloud Atlas actually marked his first credit as a production designer. Now, nice. I started looking into this and I was like, well, you know, I hear these terms a lot, production designer, art director, et cetera. What about the hell to is ask. the difference? <laughs> yeah, what, what is the difference? <laughs> so I, I I looked into it a little bit because I wasn't entirely sure what the distinctions were because it sounds like on surface level that they're doing very much the same thing. But what it really is, is in, in the simplest terms, a production designer goes through a film script and maps out what the film is going to look like. You know, if it's in the future, they need to map out the whole look of that future. If it's in the past, they need to do research looking into how to reproduce that past it you know and, th and this goes not just sets i mean the production designer is overseeing every look of the film right okay. yeah. whereas the art director is in charge of budgeting and executing the production designer's plans they hire they're the ones who hire the costume designers the hair and makeup staff etc so they're uh, actually doing like the they're essentially the production designer oversees everything the art director is getting into like the little details on how to actually make the art how to make the production designers vision come to life okay so you essentially the, the, director, idea, the idea person and then the numbers person sort exactly. of sort of it, yeah, yeah sort of yeah i mean the art the art director is is still has creative input but the production designer is the be-all end-all because the production designer reports to the director the production designer works with the cinematographer and the makeup effects kind of all under this one big umbrella and of course, we can't talk about Cloud Atlas without talking about the makeup effects and the folks who were responsible for that. Uh, so since the film had two crews shooting at the same time, much like they did with the cinematography, each shoot had its own makeup effects crew because you couldn't have a guy flying across the world to put a 
fake nose on Holly Berry every day. <laughs> so for their sequences, the Wachowskis brought on Jeremy Woodhead, who'd first worked with the filmmakers on V for Vendetta and had contributed hair and makeup designs to all of their films since, including going forward after this. Uh, Tickver brought on Daniel Parker for his sequences. Now, Parker was already a Hollywood vet at this point, having uh, started working. He actually, his first job was an uncredited role in the makeup department on Return of the Jedi. So not a bad place to get your start in makeup. Yeah. Uh, he'd worked on everything. Like this guy's filmography is insane. Look up Daniel Parker on IMDb. He worked on everything from The Crying Game to Cutthroat Island to Apocalypto before working on this film. Wow. Uh, but of note to fans of the Cinema Shock podcast, he also worked in the prosthetics department on Toby Hooper's Life Force. Oh, oh nice. little connection there. Cool. Uh, now, one other person you, you may have noticed we haven't mentioned here. Joel Silver. This is the yeah. first. This is the first time they have not had Joel Silver as a producer on this, and I don't know Which, why. the Wachowskis' biggest cheerleader, exactly. And I don't know why, but I all I can guess, my educated guess, is that because this film was not a Warner Brothers production, I mean they contributed to it, but I, I think Silver Pictures had a deal with Warner Brothers, okay. uh, which is why he was able to work on all the other films prior to this. But yeah. because Warner Brothers was not the primary, you know producer of cloud atlas i think that that just joel silver didn't come along with it you know what yeah. i mean does that make sense yeah so that's yeah. all i can guess so the executive producer on this was a guy named grant hill who had actually been working with the wachowskis as a producer since um the matrix reloaded grant hill worked with them he was like the production manager and was credited as an executive producer on the two matrix sequels and he actually produces everything for the wachowskis from the matrix reloaded on Wow. Uh, including the upcoming Matrix 4. Uh, I don't think he worked on Sense8, but uh, as far as their theatrical releases, uh, both Matrix sequels, V for Vendetta, Speed Racer, this, Jupiter Ascending, Matrix 4. Uh, he's a producer on all of those. Nice. Hey, so um, he, while we're an another Australian, I should note, by the way. Yeah, yeah. Well, <laughs> let's about... throw another shrimp on the barbie. <laughs> That's what he says when it's time to like start. Every time he enters a room. Yeah. Right. <laughs> when when there's it's time to start production on a new film, that's how he phrases it. Actually. That's not a film. Right. This is a film. Lights and sound and throw another shrimp on the party. <laughs> yeah. Nice. Uh, a quick question about, we, we mentioned the makeup and the prosthetics and all that. Um, I know there's, and we briefly mentioned it, um, and maybe you're getting to this, maybe you're coming up to this. I know we're kind of getting to the end of our show here, but. Oh, are uh, we? There, yeah. <laughs> no, no, this, this episode is going to be as long as the film. <laughs> Just uh, fair warning. <laughs> fair enough. That's, I've got the day guys. I can do it. Um, there, so it's, it's in the film that a lot of the actors are playing, uh, are made up to be, um, different um uh, races, races genders etc yes races yeah. and genders and things did that cause any controversy because i know who you know, is this guy like we haven't just been talking about yellow face and that how we're gonna have to talk about this eventually <laughs> yes I, it did you know i just wondered <laughs> if that affected the production i don't think it <laughs> did you think that was just what i called asian people <laughs> <laughs> um oh, anyway. that, that was a joke Okay. Yeah. <laughs> no, I'm just. That's. What, I don't. Yes, Man, I, I, I think we should it, do that after reviews. 
So just FYI. Yeah. So to answer your question, though, did it affect the production like while the film was being made? No, I don't think so. And now I know that Jim Sturgis in some interviews said that he did um, question it uh, when when he signed on to the project, but that the reasoning behind why they were doing what they were doing uh, worked for him. Now, after the film was released, yes, there was some controversy, and I'm sure we'll get into that later on in the show. Okay. That's all. Thank you, Don. (laughs) So the film Cloud Atlas made its debut at the 2012 Toronto International Film Festival, where it received a 10-minute standing ovation. Uh, But not a good percentage considering the length, I would say. (laughs) Do you think the standing ovation should equal the length of the film? There should, yeah. You you just Just stand all all through the... Like with if at a so at a film festival they're showing a movie after this so basically you're standing and clapping through the entirety of the next film right okay that Just makes sense. To make sure <laughs> <laughs> so that didn't you know, this was it, so it was a hit at the at the film festival uh, but festival goers are not Joe Schmo movie goer you know what I mean uh, so that didn't exactly translate into big business once the film was distributed to those general audiences. When the film was released in October of 2012, it opened at only $9.6 million, coming in number two at the box office, uh, but ultimately grossed only $27 million in the U.S. and a total of $130 million worldwide. This is a movie that costs, depending on where who you ask, anywhere from $100 to $140 million when all was said and done. Uh, so not exactly a financial success. And critical reaction was polarizing. Uh, many reviewers did praise it. A lot of people loved this film when it came out, but uh, and they called it one of the best films of the year. Uh, while others admired the film's ambition, but felt that it ultimately failed in its execution, this movie is one of those few, and uh, that that like it split. I mean, it's at like barely sixty percent on Rotten Tomatoes, I think, or was at the time, but it mm. almost split critics right down the middle. It was on best of the year lists. And it was on worst of the year list. I was going to say, I know oh, in wow. Time Magazine, they had it, it as like worst movie of 2012. Right. Yes. You, you, there was a, a huge discrepancy in critical reaction on this, uh, so, which, is, which is interesting. I mean, but I honestly like we'll, we'll get into our own thoughts on this, but I think I'd rather a movie create some sort of big reaction one way or the other and polarize people than almost than a movie that's internationally like just totally praised the world over you know what i mean like oh they say that in wrestling too if i if i normally todd gets these but i can jump in (laughs) with her no like if you get heavily cheered or heavily booed that's better than the audience being silent yeah so yeah i mean it it makes (laughs) me think of we mentioned darren aronofsky's the fountain earlier but darren aronofsky's mother was one of those movies uh, for a more recent oh, one yeah. that like people down the middle and I the movie yeah, titled the movie mother, mother. Yeah, <laughs> I don't know anything about his actual mother uh, yeah. she gets booed everywhere she's, she goes she's a lovely she's a lovely woman but people not not everybody her. likes her <laughs> but that movie and I personally have a tendency a lot of times I've noticed about myself that those movies that are like heavily polarizing I tend to kind of like them because I like how abrasive they can sometimes be and how challenging they can sometimes be. You just appreciate uh, the reaction. Uh, again, like I, wrestling, you just appreciate the heels. Like I appreciate even, a filmmaker taking chances. Yeah. It's what it is. And I, even though, even when it's a miss, I like if it's a big swing, I admire that. Uh, but before we get into our own thoughts, Gary, let's get into the thoughts of the internet, shall we? 
uh, let's dig in. Yeah, yeah. So, so with Cloud Atlas, obviously, some people hated it. Some people loved it. Some people uh, left partway through, and some people stayed up for three days to watch the whole thing. And those <laughs> people are very tired. And so now somebody needs a nap. Uh, let's see. Let's start with uh, Nicholas. One star. This movie is so far from what the trailer and description portrayed. It included cult sexual behavior for the future story, and I was so uncomfortable I had to turn it off immediately. There are women out there who were so traumatized mentally and emotionally from cult abuse and brainwashing, I would never spend money on this movie had I known what it contained. Why do people find such dark subject matters entertaining? Is there not enough warped and whack trash in the world already? I'll be sticking to movies that are interesting without the human rights abuses and constant nasty characters. So I don't know what that guy was fucking talking about. What is he? What what cult is he talking (laughs) about? (laughs) I just had to use that one because I was just curious what you guys thought about that. Maybe if he had watched the film, he would have known that there was no cult in this movie at all. (sighs) No, there's some despicable characters in it, but there aren't any cults. (laughs) Weird. Uh, Brian says uh, one star. This movie's so bad. Three hours of Jar Jar Binks. I would get my money back if I could. I couldn't find a single thing about this movie I thought had entertainment value. I only sat through the entire movie because I spent money to buy it on advice of a friend. He is no longer my friend. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> I think there, w- I think there would have been cults, but that was part of the them not getting the full hundred twenty million. It was <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's it. <laughs> like, We're gonna have to cut the cult, guys. Cut the cults out. It was originally seven stories. This other person calls it an aggravating, unrewarding experience. Watching this movie to the end is a Herculean endeavor. Cloud Atlas makes the most abstract, slow, even meandering movies feel like sweet, dazzling, scintillating memories. There isn't a single scene that's interesting or satisfying. Not one. This is uh, uh, ba- Bhakti Lata. Is this person's name. The storyline of Cloud Atlas is actually fascinating, and I did not find it jumbled or disorienting, as other reviews have stated. I was intrigued by how all of these seemingly disconnected people throughout the centuries were actually connected. Cinematography, acting, all of it was stellar. I give this movie one star because virtually every scene was disturbing with twisted violence and sexuality. I understand violence and sexuality are a mainstream of entertainment nowadays, but the kind of twisted murder and rape and sick humor in this movie turned me off. I want to watch this movie to the end, but I couldn't bring myself to cringe one more time. What what kind of prudes are Honestly, you? Honestly, I'd like to I'd like to congratulate that octogenarian for being able to use a computer. That's yeah. that's, that's great. Like, well, if if your standards of violence and and nastiness in a movie is Cloud Atlas, like what what would you do if we showed you like fucking Hostel or something? Like <laughs> right. Uh, this person says now. Forgive my hateful language, but I'm still recovering from the ridiculous boredom and anger that I experienced last night. I should start by saying that I spent the night trying to think of something good about this movie. I failed. This was the most pretentious, cliche film I have seen in a long, long time. This idea with telling different stories serving a single purpose, which would form a bigger picture, is overused. And it might have worked with some other films, but in this case, it's just, oh, come on, seriously? 
The cast is awful. Don't get me wrong. I usually like Tom Hanks and I love Ben Wishaw in The Perfume, but the acting in Cloud Atlas is literally scandalous. Now about the movie itself, it's crystal clear that they what they tried to achieve. It should have been some sort of revelation, which would explain life itself. In reality, it's simple, shallow, ridiculous. It doesn't raise questions or make you think. It doesn't even try to show you the answers. It just tells you stuff with a dramatic, slow, preacher-like voice and wannabe interesting accents. Honestly, this parody of a movie felt like if you caught a sub-sub-sub-cable 22-hour lame melodramatic TV show crew, you gave them a giant budget and a camera and Halle Berry for publicity, and they took the opportunity to spill every single stupid, random, and cliched thought into a three-hour nightmare. That person Ooh. literally wanted this movie to tell them the meaning of life. That that was their expectation. That's interesting. <laughs> that, that, that's, that seems like a, a burden that no film should try to, to carry. <laughs> well, hold on. Here's got, the thing. As, they, as long they as the actually... movie was, I've got an app. I've got for what for uh, I've got a review for every five minutes of the movie. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> go, go ahead, Todd. I didn't read it. I was just going to say, honestly, that last reviewer was looking for the answer to life in Speed Racer. And they were still upset about it. So they decided to take it out on cloud. Yeah. Let me just go Clearly. and save you some time before I get into these last couple that uh, if you're looking for someone to call it pretentious times 50, at least, um, <laughs> and racist times 100. That those are, <laughs> those are all the reviews. So if you're looking for those reviews, yes, they're out there. There's so many of them, um, but I did not include them all here. Um uh, I included this one because it's fun. Cloud Atlas? No, Atlas. Thank God it's over. <laughs> <laughs> well, wow. Bobby says, this shit is so ass, LMAO. That's his review? Wow. <laughs> Bobby, such a wordsmith. <laughs> Hook says... I could spit hate for this film for the next one and a half hours, but I try to make it short. Cloud Atlas is the ridiculously exuberant, inflated, officious, congested, and overexcited attempt that was expected. That said, it is appalling, conventional, and most of the times it looks awfully cheap, feeling like a failed attempt to do a TV miniseries. The idea of an ultimate genre mix is reckless. The permanent change of tone goes against every simple rule of filmmaking. What irritates me the most though is the poor ass esoterical message that the movie carries in front of its barrel chest. In which age do we live that such a flat out stupid movie produces so much hype and will probably get its undeserved place in film history? Fucking Forrest Gump, 2012. <laughs> well, oh. <laughs> all right. <laughs> Oh, and, and, and also I, I will give uh, most other reviews if they weren't about racism or uh, uh, pretentiousness, they at least included the quote, our lives are not our own. We are bound to others past and present by each crime and every kindness we birth our future. Yeah, well, that's, that's the quote from the film. <laughs> so one thing that I'm surprised, honestly, that a lot of those did not mention because I remember it being a point of conversation when the movie came out was uh, about the film's makeup. Like I remember uh, some of the, like the prosthetics. I remember that being a thing people would talk about like prior to the movie, before seeing the movie, like just from the trailers talking about it, like looking cheesy or it looking fake or whatever. Um, 
but and the makeup like to me doesn't always work you know like it, it does look fake sometimes or it looks it looks it can be a little distracting like there i know the I know the filmmakers and their makeup artists made the very specific choice, which I think makes sense that you should be able to see the actors beneath the makeup for the most part. Uh, the, the exceptions being like the Indian man that Susan Sarandon plays or the Asian guy that Holly Berry plays. You can't really tell that that's Susan Sarandon or Holly Berry, uh, but you can normally easily spot the actor beneath the prosthetics because the movie only thematically works. If you can tell that it's the same person throughout the ages. Right. Right. Uh, it, it's purposeful, but it is admittedly a little distracting at times. It can take you out of the film because uh, you find yourself playing spot the actor a little bit. Uh, like as much as I love seeing Hugo Weaving dressed up as Mrs. Doubtfire, uh, every time <laughs> I do, it does kind of pull me out of the story a little bit. You know what I mean? Yeah. Uh, yeah. Or or you see uh, Georgie or whatever, and you're just trying to figure out, okay, which one is this? This is one of them. It's Hugo Weaving, right? It's Georgie, Hugo Weaving's pretty easy to spot. I mean, <laughs> even as Georgie. Uh, Georgie's one of my favorite characters in the movie, honestly. I love, I love the look of that character, old Georgie. Uh, and the makeup is, I mean, I guess we just got to get into it. It is sometimes a little problematic, especially in the neo-soul sequences, which sees a bunch of white dudes playing Asian, mm-hmm. uh, you know. Which is even more why I thought they wanted Keanu because you can't. Well, Keanu is yeah. mixed race, right? So he's, he's part Asian, Asian, yeah, and, yeah, and, and white. He's so, a half Chinese. Yeah, so I guess that is even more why that happens or something. So I guess since we mentioned it, this was a good time to bring up the controversy that Todd uh, asked about earlier because <laughs> when the movie was released, there was an an advocacy group called Media Action Network for Asian Americans. Uh, which is is a you know m a n a a just rolls off the tongue that that <laughs> group name but they they're an ad- advocacy group and they criticized the film's use of yellow face to allow non-asian actors to portray asian characters in those neo soul sequences uh they they also said kind of part of their statement on this was that the film's lack of blackface being used to portray black characters was kind of a double standard uh, which I understand where they're coming from because they don't there there aren't any sequences where a let's say a white character is playing a black character uh, that is true although there is the opposite because you've got Holly Berry playing a uh, a white German woman that's true and, and the director's kind of their response was that the same multiracial actors portrayed multiple roles of various nationalities and races uh, not just Asians across the film storyline uh, which showed this that the whole concept, the whole theme of the continuity of souls, that's a very big part of the story. And and I get where both sides are coming from on this. Uh, I, I really do. I, I think it's just most blatantly seen in the Neo soul sequences because every character in those sequences is Asian and only one of the main characters is Asian. So it's, it's a little, right. it's, it does stand out a lot, yeah. e- even though you do have, like I said, Susan Saranda playing, an Indian man, right? Later, you know, at, at one point. So, I, I get it. Uh, I get where they're coming from. I get where both sides are coming from. But, uh, and I don't know, honestly, if I'm being completely honest, I don't know the right answer to whether that's a problem or not. 
I, 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 I could see how it could be perceived as problematic to somebody, me uh, obviously not being Asian and like, I don't, I can't speak from experience as to how that would make me feel. Don't, don't go back to our episode on uh big trouble, little China. Yeah. That's where Gary but, does yellow voice. Oh, yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> no, Hey, listen, I mean, the thing is, is like, I try to be empathetic and understanding. I think all approaches have to be a, uh, hit that way and i'm not a big advocate for the people that think like uh cancel culture is too much of a problem i get i get where people are coming from when they think that but i guess what i'm trying to say is i'm trying to establish all up front all the things that could get me canceled here what i say <laughs> that people have got to be able to have more than one thought in their brain and context is a huge part of everything. Absolutely. Yes. Yeah. And so blackface is abhorrent. Like yeah. the, what blackface was. It's mocking. Yeah. Mocking the person. But if it was like 1995 Gary and I wanted to be Michael Jordan, I could have fucked up. Yeah. Not only because... <laughs> I'm too fat to be Michael yeah, Jordan. You don't have the basketball skills. <laughs> but also, I would have probably done some stupid shit. Like, but it wouldn't have been because I was like racist. It's it would been have been because you were stupid. I was stupid and I loved yeah. Michael Jordan. <laughs> and and uh, so it's it's tough. It's it's and so and I get that there's because of the history of it, it's tougher to approach that. So when you make the choice that you're going to do something like this movie did, you better be ready yeah. to uh, accept that you're going to deal with some shit. And, and uh, there's a difference between what they're doing with the Asian makeup in this as, as opposed to Mickey Rooney in Breakfast at Tiffany's, which is very much a like racist caricature. It's like a stereotype. Yeah, yeah, yeah exactly. No, it is. And, that, and, that, and that's where I was going with this. It's like, well, in this contextually, it, it's like everybody's doing different ethnicities you know they're multi it's like if you're gonna do like if you're in a situation where you're making a, a movie that has korea and all you use are white people in yellow face that's pretty silly for no reason yeah yeah like yeah yeah it doesn't it doesn't make sense and uh but this movie has like a multiracial cast like right. it's not that it's it's that they're they're trying to dictate they're trying to rise above race and gender and right. all of this so they're, they're, they've got a, a good goal in mind that said i'm with you that uh or with some of the critics i, I understand because they're one of the things talked about like okay yeah there's white guys in yellow face but there's not like asian dudes as white guys you know, but there is I mean, Asian but there, women. There's an Asian woman as a white woman, yeah, yeah. and as and so, she plays a Mexican woman. <laughs> yeah, so. so it's just like it's it's messing around. I feel the same way. Side note, just about like the idea of cultural appropriation. I think like in some ways, like that's what makes everything better. Like people have good ideas in different yeah. places, and uh, but it's, it's, it's different if you're doing you're, it just as like a mocking or a thoughtless. Exactly. You know. That's what that's. And that goes back to my original point. People just got to be able to carry more than one thought in their brain at a time. Like yeah. what is not, not just, is this a person being an Asian person? Is it done in a context in which it's like clearly like 
Is there a reason behind those people? Well, I don't know. I don't know how you look at the Wachowskis filmography and think, oh, these are clearly thoughtless. Right. Yeah. And even even if you go back to the Matrix and you decide, like, well, what's the point of like you're bringing in Hong Kong cinema into a movie? Right. Like, it's like, okay, well, Keanu Reeves is doing this or Lawrence Fishburne is doing Kung Fu, you know, like it's. I, yeah. Anyway, it's it's all it's all difficult mixed bag. So I think like you got to be able to like think through it critically. Yeah. Like yeah. I think know, so too. I, I think I don't think anybody here is attempting to be like a dickhead about it. No, no. I mean, I think the casting of the characters as different races and sexes is thematically consistent with the film's message, which is that we're all of one we're all connected. Like that's the, I mean, there are a lot of themes in this movie that I think we'll probably get into at least some of them, but I think that's kind of the big one is that everything, everyone's connected. And I think by, I I think by casting the same actor as in multiple races and genders, I think that's kind of their way of visualizing that Uh, it, it uses this gimmick to turn the story of a, a journey of one soul or, or however you want to phrase it, whether it's a soul or, life being whatever you know term you want to use uh from one soul into the story of of many people because you know there's this tapestry of humanity that it's trying to create Uh, by by doing this by by casting the same actor in multiple roles yeah you do get a little bit like i said earlier of that spot the actor but it also encourages the audience to draw connections between the character stories in a way that they may not have if every character were played by different actors because if i see tom hanks in this story and then i see tom hanks in this story i'm automatically the gears are turning in my head well how are they connected why did they make Tom Hanks played this character and this character and this character. Because in, in the case of Tom Hanks specifically, uh, like his character is in the earlier stories, really shitty. And he continues to kind of be shitty until the seventies when he meets Holly Berry and that he sort of instantly kind of falls for her. And then everything turns around for him. And then by the end of the story, he's like a hero, right? So he turns from being a villain He's even a villain in the 2012 part briefly, you know, in the 2012 sequence, he plays the like Cockney guy. Right. But then he sees Holly Berry, who maybe something clicks where he remembers her from that previous time in the seventies. And he has that moment where he can turn around and he can decide I'm going to like, they make eye contact. They have like this moment in that party. And he has a moment where he can decide to go talk to her, but instead he goes through with his plan and throws a guy off a fucking balcony and continues to be a shitty person. But then the Which, next by the version way, is of my him, favorite. It's great. <laughs> and Tom Hanks is really great in that sequence. But then in the, in the, his later version in the far, far future in the big Island sequence, he's made, he makes the right decision. And we see how that progresses because, he's but not the at one first, who, not at first. No, I mean, it, it's, it's a, it's a journey for him, but he ends up making the right decision. And then he ends up marrying her and having kids and like, like 20 grandchildren, you know, and he's telling a story around a campfire and he, he becomes a good person. I got to uh, say for the, sorry, go ahead. Nope. That was it. Oh, I was just going to say, I got to say for the Wachowskis, like to, to one thing that I always appreciate about them, even if I don't agree with everything they've chosen artistically um, is that they, they have a broad worldview. They seem like the people that are trying to take everything into account. Uh, Something I think our culture lacks sometimes. And so 
what what I mean is that um, like in in this situation, if you even take just futuristic 12 winters after the fall, uh, Tom Hanks, uh, he is not a good dude the whole time. Um, he is, he is, he let his friends die. He made mistakes. Like he, he's made poor choices in his life and still at, at the end of the movie, um, he's lived on and learned from his mistakes and, and has a family and obviously has grandkids and, uh, you know, like he's trying to pass along the stories and like be a better person. Like it just seems that way for like Tom Hanks. So I'm, I'm just saying, so even there, or even when I talked about earlier, like that people were like, Oh, you're passing along a genetic line. And some people are like, you're passing along a soul. The Wachowskis don't make any judgment on that. They're, yeah. they're not telling you this is an atheist story or a religious story or like a reincarnation story or, you know, like whatever, they're not telling you what it is. It just, well, it's just like we talked on the matrix. They leave that open to like, there are many interpretations. Uh, uh, I mean, this could also be about stories being passed down from one generation to another because the movie opens and ends with a guy telling a story around a campfire. But you've got, you know, you've got the journal, you've got the letter, you've got the the uh, the the music, you've got the the film that's made. Like it's all these different stories being told, which eventually evolve into like a religion, essentially. Yeah. Well, uh, you know, the so. inter the interview, and yeah, it ends up becoming that religion. That's a really fascinating progression through that stuff yeah well some of those things that some of those reviews that gary was reading earlier some of them talked about how the film was like shallow or didn't have anything to say which is another critical uh like another criticism that i've seen in some of the reviews from 2012 when this came out saying that the film doesn't have much to say or at least doesn't say enough to warrant its scope and length uh but i think it's because like the the essential message of the film is fairly simple being kind is like a good good idea like you should be a kind person like that's a pretty simple message uh but it also kind of that works into that idea of sincerity that we talked about with the wachowskis on our speed racer episode Uh, i think they're very sincere filmmakers and i think they do are, are genuinely just like you should be good people like like that's yeah that's very simple but and and some some critics see that as very naive but i see it as like more people should ascribe to that like that's something that more people maybe need to hear i don't doubt that the wachowskis like deep down inside that's like the legitimate belief that they hold and that despite their best efforts that seeps through in every one of their stories somehow um that said i think the wachowskis main goal uh typically and especially even in a film like this is more so uh just we want you to think we want you to think yeah and and to think about what this could be we're not we're not here to tell you a a specific message we're here to make you think about life in a different way than you might have before or a process in a different way so and maybe that's maybe I'm being pretentious now. And I, I it, no, I think you're believe right. me, I did not start this series out with this intention <laughs> because <laughs> I have been on the other side of this where I've been like, fuck these guys, girls. <laughs> I mean, I didn't mean that in a derogatory way. Yeah. <laughs> fuck these people, fuck the Wachowskis. I've been there where I've been like, these, these folks are just well, pretentious. I've been on the pretentious side of it. And 
Justin, make a note that we isolate the audio of uh, Gary. <laughs> fuck the, the Wachowskis. <laughs> See, even I'm, I'm like tripping over my old words. No, but 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 I've been I've been in the uh, in the situation where I thought they were being super pretentious. I still stand by that they could come across that way. I don't think, but but I think that they're they are like Justin said. I think that they're sincere and uh, that they and their most important thing is they're obsessed with. Uh, based on everything I know up to this point, uh, they love the idea of philosophy and thought and how important that can be into the process of humanity. And uh, they want to continue that discussion. And they do it through film where used to you do it on the steps of some Greek theater or something. Right. But uh, they're doing it here. And that's that's what the Wachowskis do. They're philosophers. Well, and they're using the 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 tools of filmmaking to do that. Uh, because like if on, on paper, like if you were to isolate any of the stories, the six stories that make up Cloud Atlas, any of them on their own or not, not bad, but unremarkable, you know, they, they, none of them would, they, they would maybe entertain you, but nothing to write home about, right? They're pretty standard as far as plot goes, but plot's not the point. Uh, it's the way that they bounce off each other, the way that they inform each other, the way that they form this tapestry of the film as a whole. That's where Cloud Atlas really shines. And that comes from, again, them using their the filmmaking tools at their disposal, the, starting from the script stage, uh, but all the way through the editing of the film, because the editing on this film is fucking incredible, like absolutely incredible. Uh, and I think this movie is, I mean, it does have, it's not a flawless film, but I think it's a genuinely very good movie. Uh, it's beautifully filmed. I mean, it's a gorgeous film. Uh, and, and like I said, the, the editing's amazing. The production design, all the like technical things that would make a movie look good are there. And I think it's got some really good action set pieces. I think there's some really thrilling stuff in there. Uh, but I think it's the, it's the way that all the stories work together between them between each other, the way they like work together, that is, is what makes the film really special. Um, and by the way, that editing, they did receive a, an Academy Award nomination for the editing on this film. So uh, it, that was at least acknowledged. Uh, but, but, you know, you start talking about, you know, like Gary was saying, the Wachowskis might not necessarily want you to, like, they're not going to spoon feed you like this is the message of this film. This is the theme of this film. Because one thing that I've noticed about, pretty much everything we've talked about so far, you can't nail down a single theme. There might be a a, a dominant theme to their films, but there's no single theme in any of them because they like to fit as much as they can into every movie that they can. I mean, this one you've got, they're, they're remarking on how humans will inherently exploit each other, whether it be through slavery or greed, because you've got you know, in the 19th century sequences, you've got literal slave trading, but that's still going on in seal, soul, uh, neo soul. You know, like the the replicants or whatever they're called are slaves. Yeah, you know, another aspect of it. Yeah, yeah. And you've got, uh, I mean, you the theme of cannibalism. The the you know, what what is it that uh, Tom Hanks says? The weak are meat, and the strong do eat. Uh, that's that's a the, the terrifying. The yeah. <laughs> Yeah, that, but yeah. that idea, that theme of like cannibalism, and not necessarily there is literal cannibalism in that uh, future sequence, but there, there, the idea, even uh, Jim Broad, or Jim Broadbent makes a um, soil and green as people joke, and yeah. is, you know, yeah. uh, but there's this idea that 
the weak are being fed on by the stronger. And in the case of this film, the stronger are often the, just like in all the other Wachowski movies, the people in authority, right? Mm. So there's also this overarching idea that all of our lives are connected. I mean, that's the, that's the biggest, I think, takeaway that most people would have with this film and that we can have an impact far beyond our own lives. I think that's a major thing that the Wachowskis are saying here beyond your life, like beyond your death, things that you do that you might not even know are having an impact on somebody that you'd like walk by on the street and say hello to, or something, you know, you don't know how that's going to impact their day and where that's going to take their day and therefore the branches that could take off for their life you'll and you'll never know right but everything you do could have an impact on somebody else so in this film you've got a man on a boat he's writing in a journal a few years after that or uh, quite a few years after that a young composer reads that journal he composes the sextet you know and this this sort of interconnectivity continues through each story they're each connected by some piece of art from the previous one right until we get to a future where a clone slave writes a manifesto that that becomes the basis for an entire belief system Mm. like that's that's in pretty incredible i think yeah Uh, so here's how I, i found an interview this morning of david with david mitchell about this and here's how he describes cloud atlas's themes this is a quote from him he says one is the interconnectedness of cause and effect you think you have your own little life and it runs along on its own tracks especially these days we think we're islands but we're actually interconnected archipelagos of islands number two it's about predacity, the way that individuals prey on individuals, tribes on tribes, corporations on their host societies, states on the individuals within those states. That predacity part, that's the, the weak are meat and the strong do eat. That's what he's mm. talking about there. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it, and that's the theme that we see in every story, the people being preyed upon by those who are above them in the social hierarchy. I would right. also take that, though, too, to say, like... Um... I mean, just to just to throw it out there that um, uh, what's her what's her name uh, by uh, Duna Duna. God, why couldn't I think of her name for a second? Uh, she or Duna by uh, she uh, she is uh, she says when she sees that they feed us to ourselves. And I even took that like during the time, like when they when these women are like, they're just led to believe that a certain fate awaits them and a certain thing is happening. It's just like, God, I don't know. You could drive it down like like modern day media that like, they'll just feed you more of what you'll eat. Like they'll just, they'll, they'll just keep giving it to you. Like that's uh, what, what drives you, what, what keeps you going. And uh, it's, 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 it's tough. There's a lot to think about. Yeah, but I think what the film is telling us ultimately is that despite the fact that like there are going to be bad people all the time throughout history, right? Uh, No matter what, no matter how good you try to be, there's going to be somebody that's fucking terrible, but it's still worth fighting for. That's something that kind of tracks with the other Wachowski's films. Like as we've discussed on this series, all of these films are about fighting oppression in one way or another. Cloud Atlas, more than any other, tells us that, yes, there will always be something to fight against, but it's still worth the fight. And so I found this really great YouTube video from this channel called Like Stories of Old. It's a really 
incredible YouTube channel that I would recommend if you're into like really deep, uh, often philosophical discussion on art and especially on film. He does a lot of movie stuff. Uh, he most recently did one on Dune, the the new uh, the new Dune movie that's really good. But in, he did a, a video on on Cloud Atlas, and he references uh, a Russian novelist named Alexander. I'm gonna fuck this up, but <laughs> Alexander uh, Solhensen, Sol Sol Solhensen uh, is a Russian novelist, like. Pulitzer Prize one or whatever. He, he's explicitly referenced in the film. You actually see his photo yeah, they bring on the screen in, in the Neo Soul sequence. Yeah, so he's this is not just like this YouTuber pulling this out of his ass. Like this is something that the movie explicitly references. Uh, and he says, like one of a quote from this writer says that one drop of two, tr- excuse me, one drop of truth can outweigh an ocean of lies. To which Cloud Atlas in one of its final scenes with Jim Sturgis, you know, where he confronts uh, Hugo Weaving says he's going to become an abolitionist. He says, but what is an ocean but a multitude of drops? And this is once again the Wachowskis fighting, like we talked about in Speed Racer and V for Vendetta, fighting for the truth. Like one drop of truth might sound inconsequential in, in an ocean, but Cloud Atlas argues that, that that drop is all that matters because what this movie is showing you is that its ripples can change everything. Right. And that's a huge message for a a movie. Uh, And I think that I think the way they execute it here personally, I I love this movie. And I think that they I I, I love I loved it when I saw it in 2012. Uh, I didn't grasp everything they were trying to do. This is probably the third time I've seen it in the last almost decade. And the, the more I've seen it, the more these messages of what they're trying to say have really come through. And the reason for all the decisions they're making from the casting and the makeup effects and all this stuff starts to like, when you realize what they're trying to do, it's, it's pretty remarkable, but it's, it's remarkable that they, they were able to get this done and that they were able to execute it as well as they did. Cause this is a hugely ambitious idea. Uh, it's hugely, hugely ambitious as just a film from a filmmaking process, but just the, like, like they said, when they were attracted to the novel, the scope of its ideas are huge oh yeah yeah it's it's monumental is <laughs> the word that comes to mind so is not going to make you any friends though because he's you know if you're a real real lefty he's anti-communist just throw yeah. that out there he, well, he, was yeah, I mean, he, he lived in communist russia yes yes and and it was a staunch staunchly anti-communist uh but communist russia wasn't a great place to be at the time yeah uh, i will, Wait, I will say what <laughs> tom hanks uh i found a couple of quotes from tom hanks one of them uh says uh i've made an awful lot of movies that didn't make any sense it didn't make any money but that doesn't alter the work that goes into it or even if or even what your opinion of it is like i made a movie that altered my entire consciousness cloud atlas i thought geez this thing is so fab. It's the only movie I've ever been in that I've been that I've seen more than twice. And it didn't do any business. And there's nothing you can do about it. And you must allow yourself a week of thinking, geez, I'm so bummed out. But that's not the only reason to do it. It's lovely when it all works and you get ballyhooed. But if it's 50-50, you're way ahead of the game. In reality, I think it's more like 80-20. 80% of what you do never works. 
he also says, uh, we shot Cloud Atlas on a hope and a dream of nothing but a circle of love. But the work itself, we were part of this big, massive ensemble, fantastic people who were just trying to do the hardest, best work on a deep throw. That whole movie was such a deep throw that making it was magical. Uh, Hugo Weaving also said, I think films have a limited ability to change the world, but that doesn't mean you don't stop trying. You do what's right for you. Make the films you believe in. Talk about the issues you believe in. The bigger the risk, the more chance you're going to be crucified, and you have to execute your beliefs in any way you can. In the end, Cloud Atlas has something to say about love and hope, believing in something. It wants to tell us that individual choices can come to mean something universal. And I get the idea that, I mean, neither of you had seen this before, but through our conversation, even though I don't think either of you have explicitly said so, I get the idea that both of you uh, enjoyed the film. Would I be uh, right in saying that? sucked. <laughs> <laughs> a twist ending. Uh, I, I, think it's, I, I think the best thing I've said that even applies to this movie is you have to be able to hold more than one thought in your head. Uh, yeah. it's, it's that uh, if you're going to a movie to see Fast Five, this ain't it. You're yeah. not, you're not going to turn happy. your brain off at the door on this. One. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And uh, so, yeah, I, I think that's it. I think that, that I don't see how anybody watches cloud Atlas and says, this is a shitty movie. Like technically it's not. And, uh, and, and even, and even, well, so we had this discussion in our discord the other day about, can you objectively call a movie good or bad? And uh, that conversation came up. So like one of the options I, I, I had mentioned that I guess technically you could judge a movie, but even some things that are technically, uh, to use Hanks's word, ballyhooed, uh, <laughs> things that are even there that you choose to go against the normal parameters of what is qualified as good in this situation could artistically be chosen to be different. And so it's, it's tough and so I say, like, yeah, you can watch this movie and technically everything's pretty fucking on point. And the worst the worst part of it, technically, that you could probably point to. Editing or the makeup, and I would say that both of those things are an artistic choice. And so I think the editing is incredible in this film. Personally, I, I know that some people. Well, yeah, I just mean, I, I think yeah. some people hate the idea that it jumps around so much um and and then even the makeup like you said was uh, you you pointed out was a point that they made to, so that you could see that there the is actors, a connection yeah. to the other parts of this which wouldn't have worked if you had like i don't know different actors playing or like, just put makeup on them that made them totally unrecognizable yeah like it's or, important that you can tell that it's tom hanks every time or tom waits as georgie although would have been perfect casting oh that uh, would have been pretty good just actually tom waits <laughs> in all of the hugo weaving roles including right. the, the nurse <laughs> but it, it would have worked if hugo weaving was playing the other parts and so <laughs> anyway how about you todd you know i I understand that my role here is to kind of offer the gut reaction. You know, most of the time uh, I'm seeing things for the first time or first time in a long time. And uh, to be honest, this is, this is the first time uh, in recent memory that I feel uncomfortable giving an opinion based off of one viewing. I feel like this movie needs to be viewed two, if not three times to, because I mean, we, it's I would not disagree with that at all. Yeah, yeah, we mentioned it earlier in the show. Like it is complex. Like, and mm-hmm. that's and that's a, it starts at complex. <laughs> like, yeah. uh, 
it's technically yes it's a it's a great looking movie uh stellar cast um i i was able to grasp a lot of the stuff but they i mean i mean we joke about how long this movie is but they pack a lot of stuff yeah into this time frame and i don't know that one viewing is is truly enough to um unpack it all and uh so if i if i'm regulated to thumbs up thumbs down at, at this point i have to go like middle of the road just because i feel like i haven't experienced it enough yeah. to want to to give hey this is how i feel boom uh so yeah i i, I didn't I didn't hate this movie as you know, we read the reviews of so many people online clearly do, but um, like at the same time, I, you know, I I'm fascinated by it. I, I want to experience it again, you know, good or bad. I, I want to, I want to dive in again and, you know, really start to unravel some of these things in my mind. It's um Watch it with the subtitles that, on, but but I, I but did, I, I did. You know, Justin's I, pro tip: uh, watch, watch with the subtitles on. It, I, I told Todd, I saw all. Todd last week, and I was like, you should watch it with the subtitles on, at least because the the stuff in the future uh, is a lot easier to suss out. It's what a they're little tricky. With the subtitles. Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. Uh, no, it's honestly that that's a it's a smart move. That would have been a, that would have been a good move. I here here's my thing with what you're saying, Todd. Is that like the tough part? with the Wachowskis I'm finding up until this point is that nothing ever technically with them is bad. Um, they're, they're very, very good. The, the tough part is, it's like, is this a movie I'm going to throw on on a Saturday night because I'm just like ready to watch a movie. It's like, but not every probably, movie is supposed to be that. Well, no. Okay. <laughs> so, so that's where I'm going though is, is like, I'm saying like, it's not, so it's tough to recommend it. It's tough or it's tough on like where you recommend it. It's like if you want it to be a thoughtful like piece of art that like really like hits at it's, your soul and you're supposed it's not to think a, it's about not it. a popcorn candy type movie. None of this. this is, a lot of people that are going to movies and going to see things and even the way that you advertise movies these days is especially mm. this way that you've got to produce like uh, I don't know. I, I saw, I, I don't remember, but I saw that this movie had like some kind of six or seven minute uh, trailer for it at some yeah. point too. And so it's like, okay, well, they were clearly even trying to get it to you there, but it's like, this movie is not, if you're going to watch like some fucking sci-fi epic and your idea of sci-fi epic is uh, Star Wars episode 10, then this is not going to do it. Like this is is gonna bum you out because you're gonna this is not what this movie is and all movies don't have to be there they don't have to be that and the Wachowskis are fully aware of that and they have no interest in being that they have interest in their own aspirations and at the same time while I respect that and I get it one of the weird things about them that I've come to think about. Um, is and I and and the perfect example of this I actually heard today on an interview and it was Devin Faraci like interviewing the Wachowskis and I saw it on YouTube it was like for like Cineflix or something but he said at the beginning he was like uh, in Speed Racer you make it a point to say that Speed cares about racing or he says like all I have ever cared about or all I love is racing but to keep racing I have to win and he's like do you ever think about that with your movies like do you obviously want to have a big canvas to paint on and 
you know, you have to be successful. And I wonder about that with them because they kind of don't answer that in that interview, by the way, they kind of just move on to like a different subject, sort of, it felt like. So it kind of makes me wonder with them because like I, to hear Tom uh, Tickford talk about it, like there, he believes, and he speaks for all of them when he says it, they believe there's a huge audience for this kind of thing that people just don't want to be spoon fed the same thing over and over again. There's people ready to think, ready to find art that challenges them, ready to, you know, that whole thing. And that may be true. What I worry for the Wachowskis is, is that though that audience, those people, they come later like that, that that's further down the line. And so, whereas studios look at the box office that weekend, number one, Exactly. And so anyway, I'm saying a lot of things all here, but uh, hopefully that made sense. It's just like, I, they're not popcorn features and I will forever, never think of a Wachowski movie thinking that I'm going to see that. And that's good from, from this, this series, like having to learn, I don't dislike the Wachowskis at all. Like I thought that I might like after the matrix reloaded where I was just like, Oh, this movie is way too heady or way too long for me. Now it's like, that's the Wachowskis movie. That's what it should be. You're, uh, you're, you're, you're uh, figuring out their wavelength that they're, they're operating on here. (laughs) Right. Yeah. And well, and the thing with uh, one thing about cloud Atlas that I find very interesting when you look at it in the overall, like, view of what the Wachowskis have done so far is this feels very much like a precursor to Sense8, which is their Netflix series that they do a few years down the line. Uh, but, and we'll, we'll, I'm sure we'll, we'll talk about Sense8 towards the end of the series a little bit, but uh, the interconnectedness and the overall scope and many of the themes of Sense8 are present here. Sense8 gives them a chance to do it over the course of 26 hours or something like that you know so uh they're able to say a little bit more and it's a different setting and everything but a lot of this a lot of the same themes especially that theme of that theme of interconnectedness is literally the plot of sense eight you know so uh but and, and you'll see a lot of the same collaborators that they started working with new collaborators that they started working on with this film uh working on Sensate, including Tom Tickber, including the composer, including the cinematographer, like a lot of the same people continue to work with them down the line and on the, the Matrix movie that's coming out later this year. So uh, before we wrap things up, though, uh, gentlemen, uh, we it is time to do a little bit of further viewing. Uh, if you were to, this is a weird one because there's like six different genres yeah. in this film. So <laughs> if you were to double feature this, let's say you had all night because it's going to take it to double feature this one with something else. What would you pair it with? Well, honestly, uh, you know, as soon as I got done watching this um, and it's, it's funny that we mentioned it so many times throughout uh, the show today is uh, it's one of my favorite movies is the fountain from Darren Aronofsky. Um, In fact, I'm going to go a little bit further instead of saying, Oh, just pair it with it. I'm actually going to go ahead and say, watch the fountain first. Because I feel like it's going to kind of get you in the headspace yeah. to accept uh, more of the things that Cloud Atlas is trying to bring you. Yeah, I think so that's- I think you know we, we talked about Cloud Atlas having a hard time getting to the screen because of the Fountain's failure. I think the Fountain's failure uh, was also very unwarranted because I think it's a really incredible film. It's a fantastic movie. Yeah, yeah. Have you read the comic? 
I have. In fact, I have, it on, I have it on my shelf over here. <laughs> nice. Yeah. Yeah. I haven't read the comic. I'm going to have to borrow that. From it you. Honestly, <laughs> it's worth it. Yeah. yeah. I'm a big Aronofsky fan anyway. And the fountain, I think would be a great double feature with this. You got to be ready to sit down and just think. Yeah. I yeah. thought we were going to skip around that one because of the earlier discussion, but I'm like, Oh, the fountain is definitely yeah. this. Like this is, this is the perfect double feature, I guess. Yeah. If you're what a, do you have any others to throw in? 12 hours of <laughs> thinking too much. Uh, I'll go simpler. I'll say uh, you should watch Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind. How okay. about that? Yeah. Like that one just said, just going through the different like moments in life and that sort of thing. It's a smaller scale, I think. Oh, yeah. But yeah, wonderful yeah. film, though. That and, uh, and even. Uh, another one was magnolia like magnolia was actually one that i thought of um believe it or not like for one i've got i've kind of got um paul thomas anderson on the brain because that new one's about to come out and i'm a big fan of his but magnolia's when i was trying to think of a movie with like multiple stories that all kind of interconnect you know magnolia was the first thing that came to my head uh because it does it is about you know it, now in in magnolia they don't take a place across you know 500 years uh, it all takes place on like a single night in the valley in california but right. it shows how we're all connected on a less not not quite as big of a cosmic scale as cloud atlas uh but still nonetheless uh, people are interconnected to each other in ways that they they don't necessarily know it's funny how. like it could exist in the same universe it's just yeah. like while this overarching like grand scheme of things can be connecting you yeah. there's also like the intricate little moments here and there where like yeah, people in your own your own neighborhood your own town yeah you're just like yeah. connected to the people right next door mm -hmm. and magnolia is a fantastic movie uh so those were actually the fountain and magnolia were two on my list so good job guys we're all on the same uh on the same page yeah here. the nice. other one that i had uh was run lola run uh, Tom Tickver's breakout film and not just because it's him but because the film if you haven't seen it it's about a woman who she's basically she's got to get she's she's on the run from like some drug dealers and stuff but basically she messed the, up a delivery or something or like a drug delivery yeah yeah but the movie shows how different decisions that she makes affect her future essentially so it's oh. showing her she, when, I, when it's called Run Lola Run, because she is literally running the entire movie because she's uh, against the clock, but it shows the same scene, the same run, the same journey, I think three different times, if I remember. Yeah. Wow. But she makes like a slight, slightly different decision each time, and it branches off into a different ending, a different reality. Like So it's kind of showing much of the way this movie plays on the idea that the decisions that we make affect things in the future she, little decisions that she makes even over the course of a, a half an hour affect her life wow so it's, it's it's actually thematically similar but again on a much smaller scale uh, it's also a, just uh, once again like a, just a really great film it's a really good film and it is an adrenaline rush for 90 minutes it nice. is just like non-stop it's really fun that's so cool. that would be mine yeah so that's uh those are good good job guys we did well nice. yeah i think we did all right <laughs> yeah so for the wachowski's next film you know this one as we've said didn't do that great you know but this is they're still the wachowski's and they still these are still even after 
two big failures in a row <laughs> financially, these are still the filmmakers who brought us the matrix, right? So Hollywood still has that notion of them, even though it's been more than a decade at this point. Their next film would be one that Warner Brothers actually approached them. We'll get into the story of the making of it on our next episode. The Warner Brothers approached them with the idea to create a new franchise, much like they had created a franchise with The Matrix. The Warner Brothers wanted a new, uh, they wanted a new film that was going to start a whole new franchise that they could just branch off of and make sequels and, and you know, spinoffs, and et cetera. It didn't quite work out that way. <laughs> but, uh, so the, but we'll get into that next week. That movie is from, uh, I don't even know what year it is. I didn't write it down. 2015, I want to say, uh, starring Channing, Channing Tatum. They got T- Channing Tatum. And Mila Kunis. She could get it. Let's and be Eddie honest. <laughs> Let's be honest. So could Channing. So. <laughs> uh, we're talking next week about jupiter ascending 2050 have you guys seen it no but i did watch bad mobs and bad mobs christmas (laughs) yeah how was that (laughs) they were were actually pretty funny but uh (laughs) i saw jupiter ascending in the theater and that's the only time i've seen it so i'm excited to watch it again and and, yeah uh, i remember it being sort of nuts so yeah i I saw remember eddie redmayne specifically being kind of weird and nuts oh i was gonna say i just noticed eddie redmayne's in it and he he's through it to me ever since his performance in les mis gary hates his voice in les mis (laughs) who is he in les mis He's uh Mar uh the he's the the guy who marries the girl. I can't think of names right now. <laughs> okay, but he's it, the guy he who seems... marries the girl. Oh, gotcha. <laughs> That's how he sounds. Oh, <laughs> I gotcha. Not far off, but he does sound a little bit, a little bit like Kermit the Frog. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> anyway, uh. Well, see, now I want to go find, you know, all the songs of Les Mis and like interpret them as Kermit the Frog. As yeah. Muppets. That'd be very Muppets. Be Don't great. listen to Eddie Redmayne do his part. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think we're done for today, guys. Thank you for joining us on this. Uh, we're getting pretty close to the end of our run on the Wachowskis. We've got, I think, two more episodes left. One will be Jupiter Ascending. One will be the new Matrix movie when it comes out. Oh, yeah. So this has been a fun journey, and uh, I'm excited to see the new Matrix movie, especially considering the discussion we've had so far this has been really cool oh, so thank yeah. you guys for joining us along this journey uh gary todd where can you f- be found on the internet for our listeners to follow i am at this is gary horde on all of the things and uh yeah i also do stuff for at nwa at tipw show there's some wrestling things but uh at this is gary horde that'll get you everywhere and if you are a fan of star trek Head over to at Computer Resume on all of the socials for my show, the Computer Resume podcast, where we cover the entire Star Trek franchise in chronological order. And you can follow me at Mr. Todd A. Davis on all of the socials. Well, and I am at Justin underscore Bishop, Twitter, Instagram, Letterboxd. Uh, you can find the show at Cinema underscore Shock. Uh, you can uh, find us on Twitter and Instagram. We're also on Facebook. We're on Discord. We're at cinemashock.net. You can find all of our merch and all of our uh, links to Discord, links to all of our social, links to all of our episodes, obviously. Uh, you can also you know, hit us up on social media. Let us know what you're watching. Let us know what you think about the Wachowski films or the Wachowski series so far. Uh, let us know what you think about the upcoming Matrix movies or just tell us like what Christmas movies you're watching. I watched Fat Man starring uh, Mel Gibson last night. So that's something nice. we could talk about if 
you wanted to for some reason we talked about it for 10 minutes before we started recording the show today so well i watched bad mom's christmas i just talked yeah. about that that's got mia kunis so that's gonna yeah. have a deep connection to gary, jupiter gary will <laughs> undoubtedly be watching holiday in handcuffs at some point this season oh yeah bring nice. that up i'll talk to you all about that well until next week may the wings of liberty never lose a feather and be excellent to each other I believe there's another world waiting for us, Sixsmith. Better world. And I'll be waiting there for you. I believe we do not stay dead long. Find me beneath the Corsican stars, where Johnny has the keys. Yours eternally, RF. Thanks, Todd. That was a Thanks. That was quite a performance. Thank you. <laughs> Sounded just like Paddington. Uh, thanks. <laughs> That's what I was shooting for. Yeah.